Hey, Emu, how are you? Welcome back for another week of uh, discussion about this kind of new reality we're living in. It's nice to see you. Uh, I am terrible. Thank you for asking. Um, but it is <laughs> nice to see you as well. Oh, Emu, uh, that's the mark of a good friend. Someone who's nice to see even when things are terrible, even when you're feeling terrible. So yeah, uh, I'll take that as a compliment that it's nice to be seen even in terrible times. Yes. So... I wanted to chat with you about something today that I am struggling with and trying to figure out how to think about, and I'd like your help in thinking this through. You game for that? Yeah, you've come to the right place. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, my therapist. Um, so here is what is on my mind. Uh, so I was in Ben Gurion Airport. I was coming back to America for a couple of weeks, and we do intend on trying to get back to Israel. And I happened to be scrolling through the news feed, which I do compulsively all the time now, more than I'd like to admit. Yeah. That's part of the new reality here. And I'm, you know, paging through the Times of Israel, and my eye catches the third most popular article. And I was stunned because it was like this really disturbing article. Mm -hmm. It was an article about sort of reprisal violence happening on the West Bank. I had heard about this a little bit, rumors and stuff, but this was like an article that actually went um, and had some backup, some video, which was really, really disturbing to see. And this was basically sort of vigilante groups sort of taking justice into their own hands and administering justice against what seemed to be these random Palestinians in the West Bank, either intimidating them or kind of even humiliating them. It was just, it was just stomach-turning to watch. There was a particular video that really got me down where there was somebody in an army uniform who looked like a, you know, like one of us, Orthodox Jew kind of person, who had like a blindfolded Palestinian that he was dancing with. It just, it was literally stomach-turning. It's like if you change around the vision of that, and you go back 75 years, there's those pictures of, you know, German tormentors dancing with Jews and, and, and scaring them and humiliating them. And I suppose, you know, you could say, well, uh, you know, 75 years ago, that scene ends with a dead Jew at the feet of a German. And uh, here it didn't end it with a dead Palestinian. Maybe it ended with an arrested Palestinian who... Um, and it, it seems like these are guys who crossed over illegally into Israel, and maybe there was a fear that they were terrorists or something like that. But still, why are you dancing with this blindfolded guy? It just, it was really very disturbing. I'm wondering if you saw any of those images or read any of those articles. I have. I've seen some, and I'll I'll admit to you um Something that I'm, I'm sort of ashamed of um, in this war is, uh, on the one hand, I have a lot of care and compassion for innocent victims. And on the other hand, I find myself trying to avoid reading too much, seeing too much. Like, I, I don't, I, I feel bad about it, but I, I sort of, you know, sometimes I listen to the New York Times daily podcast. And when it's an episode about the plight of Gaza, sometimes I skip that day. It's, yep. it's sort of hard dealing with enough of the tragedy of my own people to like really get into, you know, this American lifestyle, empathy, journalism. 
to like really understand the pain of the other side. So I have seen uh, uh, reports of, you know, West Bank vigilante uh, justice and, and violence, but I have not seen any videos or pictures. Um, maybe I should be seeing those things, but it's, th- it's tough, very tough. It is tough. And I understand it's a complex thing, right? In other words, it's, you know, when you talk about the civilian population of Gaza or even the civilian population of the West Bank, one of the questions is, you know, what does it really mean to be a civilian population, to be an innocent population? And even there, there's ambiguity and clouds, right? Hamas was not just a terrorist organization that happens to embed itself among a people. It is the government of that people. It was only the government of that people. It was a government that was actually duly elected at one point and whose popularity, as far as I understand, went up, not down, immediately after the the attacks, whose popularity was evinced by people crowding in the streets as uh, hostages or you know bodies of captured people were dragged through the streets. And that, Those videos I did see. Right. You didn't have people standing up and saying, no, this is wrong. But, you know, complicated. Uh, if you stand up and say, no, this is wrong, then you're the next body that gets dragged through the street. So, you know, what really does the population know and see? But it does seem that there's uh, that uh, the notion that there's a great deal of, A, hatred for Israel and B, support of Hamas among the population seems to be true, which murkies, which, you know, makes the waters very murky about what a civilian population is. But even Afal Pekin, even with all of that, uh, the notion of, uh, you know, dancing with a blindfolded captive still makes my stomach churn. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to just reflect on that a little bit, because I think there is something I want to say about that. And it gets into, I think, the motivations that we, and by we, I mean we as a nation, to some extent, us as individuals, kind of ought to have in prosecuting this war or even standing by and being part of a nation at war. And I guess it gets to the following thing. It's like if you think about what is Israel doing or what is our side doing in this war, and more than the question of what, but the question of why and the question of feelings and emotions that motivate it. And I guess my point is, in my mind, there's sort of three different possible answers to that question that I want to run by you. Maybe there's more than that. These are the three that pop into my head. To which question? The question of what motivates us to prosecute this war. Somebody stops you in the street and says, what's motivating Israelis to prosecute this war? What's motivating you as an Israeli sympathizer, as an American Jew, to support the prosecution of this war, right? If you'd have to to boil that down to a single word, Mm -hmm. what would that word be for you? Security or safety. Yeah, that's one possible answer. But it's not the only possible answer. Give me another possible answer. Rescue. Possible right? Maybe I'm trying to rescue the hostages. So, And that's a good question, right? Am I fundamentally trying to rescue the hostages? Or am I fundamentally trying to reestablish safety for the state of Israel in the face of an existential attack? And to some extent, those are in tension with one another, right? Because if I'm just trying to rescue the hostages, well, maybe I'll prosecute things differently than if I'm just trying to make things safe and I don't care that much about the hostages. So that, that is one question. 
Give me any other word that comes to mind besides safety and besides rescue. This is one I've heard, um, retribution. Yes, retribution. I read about that in the papers all the time. Israel taking retribution, right, against the enemy, right? And I'll give you one last word that e- comes even to Even uglier than retribution. <laughs> well, uh, retribution is just a sanitized way of another word, which we could use, which is revenge, to right. avenge the deaths of our own, right? I can argue that they're they're different, right? Meaning you could maybe have an argument that retribution is a form of punishment that is preventative, right? If, yes. If you push me, I'm going to push you back and, and everyone will know never to push me, right? Yes. Like, so I can understand that. But I think it's important to be clear-eyed about that distinction between retribution and revenge, right? In other words, I was chatting with someone last night, the former head of a major Jewish organization that I happened to meet at a wedding, who said that you can never trust what any government says as to why it is that they're at war. Why should they tell you what their real aims are? Why should they tell the enemy what their real aims are? So mm-hmm. what the professed aim of a government is, is not necessarily the actual aim of a government. So the professed aim of Israel is to completely destroy Hamas and to uproot it. Right? Mm-hmm. But what if I told you that it may not be possible to completely uproot Hamas, that mm-hmm. Hamas is an idea at some level and can't be mm-hmm. destroyed? Mm-hmm. Right. So does that render the war moot? And does that mean that this is a fool's errand? The answer is, is that probably there's another motivation aside from completely uprooting Hamas. And that is, and uh, Yossi Kleina-Levy made this point in his podcast, uh, which I think is wonderful, uh, for heaven's sake, uh, from the Hartman Institute, which is that what Israel is really trying to do is reestablish deterrence. Israel lives in a very tough neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And um, as this major head of a Jewish organization said, you know, though, for those who say that what Israel is doing is creating another generation of terrorists, right, mm-hmm. embittered by what they're seeing, he said that's not what creates another generation of terrorists. What creates another generation of terrorists is lack of deterrence. If there's a sense that you can get away with this and you can push the envelope and Mm -hmm. the world will stop Israel from retribution and therefore you can sort of get away with this, then as one Hamas political leader famously said, we will do this a second time, we will do this a third time, we will do this a fourth time until Israel is finally defeated, right? And that's an intolerable situation for Israel. And therefore, there is sort of a covert reason for the war, which is that even if we can't completely uproot Hamas, we can perhaps reestablish deterrence. And the way you do that is by exacting a price from the enemy, which is perhaps too high for the enemy to bear. Mm -hmm. And so that is a possible motivation. But that's different than revenge, right? That's retribution that is... For the sake of that first word, which you said, safety, security. Mm -hmm. How do I reestablish security? I reestablish security by saying, you really don't want to pay this price. You don't want to have all of your tunnels collapsed. You don't want to lose 10,000 of your fighters. You don't want to have your entire infrastructure destroyed. Right? Mm -hmm. You never thought we would go that far. And the point I want to make is that retribution borders on revenge. But it's not the same thing as revenge. Revenge as a motivation is actually something that has very little to do with security, right? It is 
not retribution for another aim, such as safety. It's retribution in and of itself. It is the purple rage that says, I must get you back and I must avenge. It comes along with another word, which just keeps on popping into my head, which is justice and gets me nervous, which is like, if you think that our job is to bring justice to the world, to be the righteous crusaders that get rid of evil in the world, to me, that's, I have some sympathy with it, right? I definitely think that what Hamas did as President Biden said, is the definition of pure evil. So yes, I will buy that. I will buy into that idea that that was pure evil. But once you begin to say that it is my job to eradicate pure evil from the civilized world, to me, that is only a hop, skip, and a jump away from the kind of purple rage of vengeance. And what I worry about in the purple rage of vengeance is that vengeance is an inherently corrupting emotional motivation. If I would ask you, Emu, what's the difference between vengeance and true justice, right? What would you say the difference between vengeance and true justice is? Subjectivity, like my bias. Yes. A third party is always interested in dispensing justice, but vengeance is always when I've been attacked when it's happened to me or my kin. And then there's also um, maybe an extension of that, like emotionally the desire to commit vengeance is a, like if I were to describe it as a white, hot, all-consuming, fiery motivation, whereas justice is anything but, it is precise. And this scares me, I don't know if you're going here, but like justice is all about precision. Justice, like, you know, we will keep you on death row for years, we're going to, you know, require years of trials and standing and the uh, rules for criminal procedure are really different than the civil ones. And the rules for evidence are just much, much higher and the bar is higher. We want to be really careful. And we also like don't want any collateral justice, right? Only the perpetrators. No one else gets, you know, swept up in it. It's unjust to sweep anyone else up. But when vengeance is the motivation, right, then like, Really, the bars are so low. It's like, oh, you once gave a ride to the person who did this horrible crime and you kind of knew who we, we, you're. So you're now just as bad. You're an enabler. You're in this, right? Like everyone gets swept up when vengeance is the aim. So they are different. Uh, yes, I agree with you. I mean, the fundamental difference is exactly as you suggested, that vengeance is primarily a subjective thing, whereas justice is primarily an objective thing vengeance is a subjective kind of justice, is justice as viewed through the prism of my own subjectivity, which is why it's so sweet, because I get to be, I, the hurt one, the victim, gets to be the one to dispense it, right? So that feels wonderful, right? And yet, because I, the victim, is the one who dispense it, it is subject to all sorts of distortion due to my own subjective glasses through which I see everything that happens. So uh, you have, I would say, a quantitative and a qualitative possibility of distortion. First, quantitative, right? Uh, Bobby, you know, hurts Debbie, bonks her on the head with an empty soda bottle, right, semi-playfully. Well, Debbie comes back and doesn't really see it as semi-playful, and she's going to go get vengeance. So she is going to hide stick. behind the door 
and take a hockey stick and whack her brother. Well, you know, he's not going to go for that. So he's going to come back with something bigger and larger. Before you know it, somebody's in the hospital, right? It's an escalating thing. And it's not only escalating, but also the possibility of vengeance means that I can bring in non-combatant or I can misinterpret your motivation. I can take revenge against somebody who, right, let's say... uh, Debbie has a little sister that laughed, right? So now am I going to take the hockey stick at her because she's giving aid and comfort to Debbie, right? So you can get It reminds me of your your Baseless Hatred course. Your Baseless Hatred course uh, was a really careful read of um, the Agatha Gemara of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa, that story. And you asked a really great question of like, you know, Baseless Hatred... Who hates anybody baselessly? Nobody walks around saying, I hate Jim for no reason. It's baseless, right? Like the basics of your argument is that the baseless part is sort of when your rage gets the better of you and, you know, somebody does something that's a level two crime and you're level eight mad at them. And that's sort of what I'm seeing in this story is like, okay, your little sister laughed. And the crazy thing about vengeance is if you laughed, you are complicit in the level nine crime against me, right? Laughing may be a level one offense, but because you laughed at the level nine offense, something about vengeance has you charged that person with a level nine crime, even though it was a level one offense, right? Like you're swept up in that. Yeah. And to me, that I think leads directly to the kinds of attacks which you're seeing in the West Bank. Like uh, to Don Lakovskos, as they say, to, to view in the most charitable light, Right, we'd say, well, maybe that's not a cold, calculated thing, right? Maybe it's white hot anger, but it's the white hot anger of a kind of sense of vengeance. And to me, I think it's really important to pull back from that. That among the motivations that you talked about when I said, give me one word to describe where the motivation is coming from, I think the one word has to be safety and security. And if there is retribution to be had, if it's not just a matter of uprooting Hamas, but if there is this notion that Hamas will, even in a weakened state, continue to exist, but possibly will be deterred, and we must deter them in order to continue living, the primary operative word, I think, is self-defense. This is what I must do in self-defense. And I think as long as we have that, we can preserve something, which we talked about in earlier episodes of this podcast, which is preserve our own humanity and our own soft feelings for innocence, what, however you define innocent, even as somebody who hates Israel, even as somebody who's, you know, but who gets swept up and killed and whose little child is lost in that battle, right? But when you say, this is what I must do for self-defense, I think there's a way of squaring that with a certain kind of sadness for the loss of life on the other side, which just doesn't exist, I think. If I say, if I cross the line from safety to retribution and then into vengeance and to avenging. And what, the reason why I'm so conflicted about this is because I will admit that what Hamas did is terrible evil. And I will admit that there is a place for justice against that terrible evil. And I will admit that there is no ready court out there that is willing to prosecute that crime. So who else but us to prosecute it? And yet, even so, 
the motivation for vengeance scares me. And it scares me for what it does to us even more than what it does to the enemy. Because I think if you would have asked a Hamas operative what justified his rampage through civilian corridors of Bayri and all of that, what he would have said is some versions of vengeance for his version of the occupation, for his version of injustice. Certainly not safety. That's right. It wouldn't be safety. It would be some version of justice with all of those sort of rose-colored subjective glasses that distort everything and say, well, you know, those people in Bayri, those people in in uh, near O's, all those guys, they were sympathizers for the Zionist enemy and they were legitimate military targets. And, and that's what they'll tell themselves. But it's a narrative born on the wings of a very dangerous emotion, vengeance. And in that line, Emu, I just want to share with you, it's like, if you look at the Torah and you ask, how does the Torah relate to vengeance? It's a very complicated answer. It's not a simple answer, uh, as far as I can tell it. On the one hand, you have prohibition. Lotikom velotitor at Bnei You shouldn't bear a grudge. You shouldn't take vengeance. And yet, you have God in the second commandment describing himself as a jealous God who seems to take some kind of vengeance against enemies. You have God even commanding Israel to go to war to take vengeance against God's enemies. You have Hazinu, the final song, which seems to celebrate vengeance. And one wonders, does the Torah have an attitude towards vengeance that works? And, I, and I'll just leave you with my own thought about this. You know, there's one way of seeing it, I think, which is, and I wonder what you think about this, is that we human beings are told that we should not use vengeance in matters of our own personal disputes. Seemingly, the only one who gets to do vengeance is actually God, or God commanding a human being to act as a messenger for God's own vengeance. And, And somehow, I wonder if that's a safety. Like, God is the one being in the world who is not going to distort things through his individual lens, who could be trusted to actually do it right. So if you can be trusted not to distort things, not to take vengeance against the wrong people, not to up the ante, but to do perfect justice and vengeance, then sure, if you are the aggrieved, it's very sweet for you to be the one to carry out justice. There is some truth to that. And maybe for God that works, but only for God that works. Right? And when we try to do it on ourselves, that's one of the ways where you think you're emulating God, and before you know it, you're off in the deep end, and all you are is prosecuting your own heavily redacted view of things, which really just can eventually become catastrophic and erase the lines between you and the enemy that you're trying to defeat. Yeah, that, that last line is sort of what's very attractive to me about this conversation completely, is just to remember that like there are a lot of things that were done to our people you don't want one of them to be is that we were put into such a rage that we lost what makes us you know the best part of our identity and the best part of our identity isn't our genetics or our race the best part of our identity is is our values we can't lose our values Uh, we can't lose what makes us noble and that's that feels 
like what we're talking about here is remember who we are, even though it's hard. And at the same time, there's something that we're putting our finger on, but we haven't said explicitly. And I wonder if it's this, which is, you know, a lot of crime, a lot of the bad things that we do, they don't feel good. I'm not that tempted to do them. You know, I imagine one doesn't feel morally righteous when they're committing financial crimes, when they're pilfering yep. from somebody's, you know, retirement account like that. You're, you're a little ashamed of it. You hide it. Maybe you justify it. But like, that's really different than this kind of evil where, you, where in doing it, I bet you feel right. Yep. You feel the same way you feel like when you're standing up for good, you feel when you are taking vengeance. That's confusing. That's really, like, uh, if you treat morality as intuitive, this is counterintuitive because there's some weird mechanism in us where we feel like we are righteous in our vengeance. I wonder, you know, you talked about how the Torah makes room for some kinds of vengeance. One of the, one of the cases we didn't talk about is the Ir Miklat. It's almost like God has some sort of sympathy for that, right? So if somebody, uh, you know, kills my family member... It's not like in, in, you know, Western democracies where it's like totally not allowed for me to go kill you, right, to avenge your murder. There's actually a space like, yeah, you can go chase after him, but we're going to have these, you know, shelter cities. We're talking about the somebody who kills in the shogig, right? Someone accidentally kills, not, um, not a, a willful murderer. But still, like e- even that, like the Torah makes room for vengeance even, even yeah. when it's a mistake. Because the victim's relatives won't always see it as innocent as the Torah objectively sees it. You know, if your relative got killed due to the negligence of, you know, this guy who's chopping wood with his axe and didn't really make sure that the axe was tied on perfectly, it's one of these ambiguous kind of situations. And the rose-colored lens of vengeance says this wasn't really an accident, even though the Torah is like, well, it's kind of an accident. It was a little bit of a negligent accident, but it was kind of an accident. And so the Torah has this really complex relationship to that, which is, sure, you go take your vengeance, but we're going to protect the guy from your vengeance at the same time, almost as if both can be true at the same time. I wanted to just share with you an article, two articles, actually, and maybe we'll close with this or just get your reactions on this, what you think. The first article is a piece in the Washington Post that I read. A lot of what I've been seeing in terms of news has been these very um, quickie little updates, and you get tempted to just read one quickie update after another quickie update and scroll for the quickie update that's going to finally make it all Oh my gosh, are you in my house? Are you watching my phone usage? Yeah, exactly. But um, kudos to the Washington Post for whatever you think of the Washington Post. Um, There was a, I forget who the reporter was, it was Shira Rubin actually, who wrote a really in-depth story of the conflict a few days ago. And uh, the title of the article is uh, Hamas Envisioned Deeper Attacks Aiming to Provoke an Israeli War. And what she says in here is that, you know, as the evidence gets put together, all these pieces of the grisly puzzle comes together and you really like see the pamphlets which these terrorists had on them, see the weapons that they had on them. You begin to reveal what she calls the contours of Hamas's broader plan. And what that was, was not just to kill and capture Israelis, she says, but to spark a conflagration that would sweep the region 
and lead to wider conflict. And what she writes is, the evidence described by more than a dozen current and former intelligence and security officials from four Western and Middle Eastern countries reveals an intention by Hamas planners to strike a blow of historic proportions in the expectation that the group's actions would compel an overwhelming Israeli response. And that evidence just keeps on becoming stronger and stronger. And you have to ask yourself, one second, like if they were actually trying to provoke an overwhelming response, to what extent do we play into (laughs) their designs by trying to craft an even more overwhelming response than they possibly could have imagined in their overwhelming response. It's like, it, it's, it was very disheartening for me to read this because, and I asked myself, okay, so what exactly was Hamas thinking? Why did they want that overwhelming response? And I think the answer is they were trying to light on fire the emotions of vengeance throughout the entire region. They were motivated by vengeance. And what they were trying to do was take us and say, you know what? You join us in this struggle. Let's do a little dance of vengeance until we can get the whole Arab world and the whole Israeli world into one kind of indiscriminate conflagration. But that was the goal. And how do you defeat that goal? And to me, the one way you defeat that goal is, okay, fine. So you're going to have to have your overwhelming response, but make it a different kind of overwhelming response than what was expected. Not the white-hot response of vengeance, which knows no bounds, but the response of a professional, careful, compassionate people that will walk the terrible moral lines of trying to figure out what do I, what kind of retribution that is terrible and awful do I need to enact in order to keep myself safe rather than to make myself feel better by getting the kind of vengeance that I need against the enemy. And, and you know, it. I hate to go back to it, but it's, it's Yoda in Star Wars, you know, that quote, what he talks about the dark side of the force. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've quoted. I've quoted it to, to other people. It's fear. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. And that's the path to the yeah. dark side. And that's it. Th- that that was the Hamas intention. Can I get you fearful enough to hate? Can I get you hating enough, right, to inflict terror of your own? And if so, then I win because in a battle when we're all on the dark side, maybe I come out on top. Right. It, it, but if, it makes sense just, again, just like from a, a purely cold, you know, like risk player uh, view of things. Hamas is in a situation where nobody cared about their conflict, where everyone was very willing to preserve equilibrium. Israel's making peace with all of its neighbors and they, they're they on the losing side. So they needed to change up the game to make sure that they could or to try desperately to bring old allies back to be on their side and try and shift the calculus, try and shift the power balance. So I think what you're saying is is right, but it's a, a very cynical and evil take by Hamas to try and do something so heinous to shift years and years, decades and decades of compromises that were leading to peace in the region um, and to turn you know the people who are currently at peace with Israel into, into enemies. Yeah, I, I, you're right. I, it was it, it, uh, that's as cynical as it gets, right? The cold-blooded manipulation of the ultimate hot-blooded emotion, 
right? Vengeance as a tool of attack. Can you instill the desire for vengeance deep enough in your enemy that there's no difference between us anymore? And to me, that's the thing that we need to guard against. I mentioned to you two articles. The last one that I'll just lob your way is a blog post from the Times of Israel written by uh, Rachel Roth, which I thought was really pretty interesting. Rachel lives actually in a mixed Jewish-Arab town, and she talks about what it's like to live in a mixed Jewish-Arab town right now in her town. And she's done something, you know, there's been a lot of news articles about stuff like this, about tensions between Jews and Arabs that previously had gotten along, right? The swim team in Jerusalem with Palestinians and Jews that previously gotten along, but now tensions are flaring. My nephew's at MIT, right? And the tensions flaring between nice left-leaning brothers-in-arms, Palestinians and Jews that suddenly find themselves shaking sticks at each other and the fear of living through Palestinians rampaging through the local Hillel and screaming from the river to the sea. And and so there's all sorts of conflagration between peoples who previously gotten along. But the one bright spot, you know, was Rachel, where at the front of her blog post, she's got a sign at the entrance of her town, Shechinim Tavim, Gam Biyamim Kashim, good neighbors, even in hard times. And that sign is in Hebrew, and it's also in Arabic. Mm -hmm. And it's a call to everyone in town to continue to be good neighbors. And it's worth it to read this post. You can just Google it and find it. Um, But just to quote for you a line or two, um, you know, she's talking about how she feels now a month out into um, uh, the conflict. And she says, look, I feel protected. The beginnings of the conflict, she says, were filled with the deepest violations, violations of physical boundaries and moral boundaries, violations of personal safety, and indeed our existence as a nation. But what I witnessed was transformative, she says. People we know well, the softest and most mild-mannered people, kindergarten teachers, silly dads who throw their kids in the air, scientists, farmers, therapists. These are all folks, Jews, who signed up for the Miluim, right, and went out and are soldiers and out defending her. And that's on one hand, she feels protected. But she also says, I feel hopeful. In our shared Arab-Jewish town, handwritten billboards in Arabic and in Hebrew read, good neighbors even in hard times. And she tells of Arab restaurants that donated meals, mothers in that community who cooked for soldiers, Arab mothers. Many of our Arab neighbors have sons in uniform in the Israeli army as well, standing soldier to soldier with their Jewish friends. And to me, that's one of the things that we don't often realize, right? The, the notion, and we should be trumpeting to the world. There are Arabs in Sahal that are standing shoulder to shoulder with Jews and are fighting with them as well for a country that has given them freedom, education, and opportunity, even though it is primarily a Jewish state and not an Islamic state, or possibly because it's a Jewish state and not an Islamic state. And, you know, she tells the story of, you know, how she remembers at the beginning of the war, an Arab owner of a bicycle shop that donated hundreds of bikes to those Jewish refugees from communities around Gaza who are now without a home, work and transportation and how brave and powerful a stance that was. And maybe 
Rachel's story is an outlier. Maybe it's not the norm. Maybe the norm is the conflagration at MIT, the conflagrations at Columbia, the disaster at Harvard, the Israeli-Palestinian swim team. That's all too easy to happen. But this can happen too. And the fact that that can happen, to me, is a, a little seed of hope that, that if we can prosecute this war from a space of this is what I need to do to keep myself safe without the white-hot notion of vengeance, which just is a fire that burns everything, then we can read about this and say there's a beacon here for us to be able to preserve our humanity and, uh, and our sense of nuance, even when we do what we need to do to keep ourselves safe. Um, in no uncertain terms. Um, yeah, no, that's comforting. I think uh, I-, I talked about how vengeance can feel good, can feel instinctively good, but those stories that you shared also feel good. And crossing the divide between peoples and saying, you know, good neighbors in hard times, you know, you don't come to regret that. That's uh, the kind of thing that also feels intuitively good. I- I'll say one one more thing and then maybe we'll close it out. But like to me... It's really hard to ask people to, you know, control themselves, to be noble, to think about what makes us, you know, a, a good people and, and, and rein in those, those feelings that might feel like leaning towards vengeance. It's, it's very hard. We didn't talk about it in this podcast, but we've talked about it before here at Aleph Beta. I'm reminded of some of your pieces about mourning, uh, mourning in the desert specifically, um, and how the mourning in the desert uh, over... The various you know sins in the desert and and the pronouncements of uh, what would happen to the people because of those sins that morning got out of hand and and led to kind of worse and worse crimes and I think like I, I I don't know I think that that we're we're all kind of in mourning and I don't really know a way to say to everybody hey enough is enough now it's time to go back to being noble. But what I can feel or what I can intuit is that when we are mourning, there's just so many emotions swimming around in you. And, um, and after you know, enough time has elapsed, I think maybe the key is to find positive expression for the many feelings we have rather than letting them um, take you down in a, in a, a cycle of despair uh, leading to more fear and to more vengeance. You have to do something with all the horrible feelings that you have. And whether you channel that into nobility or in previous episodes we talked about pledging yourself to caring about others, bridging the divide, the emotions are in you, they're there. I don't know that we can say, you know, the mourning period is done, it's time to go back to normal. But but I think like you gotta do something with them or they're going to, you know, go to the lowest common denominator kind of emotion, which is fear and vengeance. So I just, I, I love that you gave us the two articles because the second one is an article that takes emotion and it, uh, it, like an alchemist, you know, it turns it into, into hope. It turns it into camaraderie and unity, which is far better than fear and vengeance. So that's, that's what I'm taking away. Thank you. Yeah. And the feeling that as you, I think you're right, that sometimes when you're mourning, it's too early to feel those complex emotions. It's too early to feel the kindness and hope, right? But you know, there's still the possibility of getting there and deciding at some point as you move on that 
there's a, a, another side to what I can feel other than darkness. Anyway, Emu, it's been nice talking to you. I appreciate you therapizing me over here. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, and thanks for giving me some comfort as well. Till next time. Okay. Talk to you. This episode was recorded by Rabbi David Foreman and Imu Shalev and was edited by Adina Blaustein and me, Hilary Gutman. For meaningful content that will inspire you and give you strength during this difficult time, please visit alephbeta.org to find a curated collection of videos related to Israel at War. <laughs>